Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, the 13th of February of 2022. We're two years now into this pandemic and we're finally starting to get some guidelines as to what we should do with thromboprophylaxis and anticoagulation in COVID-19 patients, at least from the major medical societies. The article that I'm going to be using as a reference for today's podcast was published in CHEST, one of the highest impact factor journals in critical care. It was actually published yesterday on the 12th of February of 2022. As always, this is not medical advice, and I recommend you read these data for yourself, make up your own mind, and do not trust me. Again, this is not medical advice, and I'm just a critical care doctor with a podcast recommending things that you should listen to that could impact the care of your patients. The whole reason why this has been important to me since pretty much day one of the pandemic as I've been writing about anticoagulation and VTE, venous thromboembolism, prophylaxis in our patients with COVID-19 is because we've been seeing so many people with acute PEs and DVTs. And at this point, it's redundant to describe all the effects of hypercoagulability that we see in patients with COVID-19. Again, I've been posting about this since April of 2020, so we're approaching two years now. I have honestly modified my management of these patients during the course of the pandemic, where initially I was gung-ho about anticoagulating all these patients fully. Again, when I was in the intensive care unit, I'd see patients D-dimers basically hit the sky, and uh, I would just figure, hey, these patients are prothrombotic, they might need anticoagulation. We did all sorts of things at the beginning of the pandemic that, you know, were not not supported by evidence, but again, we were just trying to do the best thing we can for these patients. And in the show notes, you can kind of see how my thought process went because I'm I'm not going to cover up what I've said before. I, I stand by the decisions I made at that time, even though I'm not practicing today the same way I was practicing before. The most important thing here when we're discussing patients in whom we should anticoagulate for COVID are, number one, the patients who we should not anticoagulate. In other words, those patients who have an increased bleeding risk and here the risk of them bleeding is higher than the potential benefit from anticoagulating them. So to get started with who those people are, just for the sake of clarifying that this should not be, you know, just a blanket statement to anticoagulate everybody. But rather, we need to tailor, we need to be good clinicians and tailor our management to patient depending on the needs of our patients. Some of the high bleeding risk patients that were described in the the paper were, you know, those patients who have needed to be in the hospital for bleeding within the last 30 days. Then also those patients with inherited or acquired bleeding disorders like hemophiliacs and such. Patients with recent ischemic strokes should also be, you know, Considered history of intracranial hemorrhage, again, risk greater than benefit. Patient presence of epidural or spinal catheters. Again, I, I haven't needed any of this, thank God, in my patients with COVID, patients with intracranial mal- malignancy. Recent GI bleeds. This is a big one within three months. This is actually big and something you should discuss with your patients in case you are going to start them on anticoagulation. Recent major surgery within 14 days, patients with uncontrolled hypertension, in this case they use a systolic blood pressure threshold of greater than 200, patients with a baseline INR of greater than 2, hemoglobin less than 8, platelet count of less than 50,000, and also patients with dual antiplatelet agents. Again, I recommend that 
these high bleeding risk patients be analyzed before starting patients on blanket anticoagulation. So let's go ahead and start looking at what the guidelines state after this quick word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for putting up with the ads. It really helps keep the lights on over here and motivating me to continue recording podcasts. That being said, I greatly appreciate your support. If you could head over to, if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, head over and give me a five-star review. Same thing on Spotify as it definitely helps the podcast grow. Continuing on to discuss what the guidelines state. And I'm going to be doing this in a bullet form because, again, the nuance of the article is in the article itself and definitely read that. But let's say, for example, a patient who is hospitalized and acutely ill. How, what should we do to prevent them from developing venous thromboembolism, DVTs, PEs, and such in the ward? In other words, these are not ICU patients. These are patients in med surge, potentially even PCU patients. The definition of what um, critically ill and acutely ill differs depending on the page, on the paper you read, but nonetheless, in this patient population, what is recommended is therapeutic anticoagulation. That means give patients either a heparin drip or a full dose Lovenox or anoxaparin. Okay, so somebody who has decreased bleeding risk, these patients should be therapeutically anticoagulated. That's the first recommendation. Now, many of us have heard about these so-called intermediate dose anticoagulation doses, and an example of this is, let's say, for example, a DVT prophylaxis dose of anoxaparin on a patient is 30 or even 40 for that matter. Some clinicians have gone ahead and done instead of once a day, they do twice a day. So 30 twice a day or 40 twice a day. So the guidelines state here that, anth- that intermediate dose anticoagulation should not be used. We should not be doing this in our patients. Either we need to go ahead and give them the full dose anticoagulation pull the trigger on that or just give them a prophylactic dose. But this intermediate dose anticoagulation, they state should not exist. So hopefully that puts that to bed in patients who are in the ward. Now, in the intensive care unit, the place where I work, the patients I take care of, what do they recommend with regards to anticoagulation for prevention of venous thromboembolism? Here, they state that prophylactic dosing should be used. And we should not be empirically anticoagulating our ICU COVID-19 patients. Out of all the different data that exists, it appears that the data here is the most clear-cut. I will interject my personal experience here. I used to provide my ICU patients with full-dose anticoagulation. I used to see their D-dimers get high. I used to see them get sicker. I'm like, maybe they just need more anticoagulation. Uh you know, tried all different types of strategies to help our patients. But here's the thing, and many of you agree with this. Once the patient's in the ICU, they're going to be there for a while. And them being on full-dose anticoagulation for such a prolonged period of time leads to bleeding complications. And I've seen too many bleeding complications for me to be comfortable with the blanket statement of fully anticoagulating on these people. Again, as 
physicians, clinicians, nurses, anybody who's listening to this, our job is to cause no harm. And here, the risk of harm is greater than the potential benefit, at least what has been seen in the clinical trials. Therefore, we should not be fully anticoagulating our ICU COVID patients. And this is supported by the guidelines now. So I hope that puts that to bed to a, to a certain extent. The other question becomes this intermediate dose that comes to rear its ugly head once again for ICU patients. To make it quite simple, here again, the guidelines state that the answer is no to intermediate dosing. One of the things that's not mentioned in the guidelines is decision-making based on D-dimers. This was something that many of us have done in our practice, but here the authors state that increased D-dimer may be in patients with increased D-dimer may be at increased risk of thrombosis. And they also stated that, quote, elevated D-dimer levels that were associated with increased morbidity and mortality. But all in all, this does not change the management of, this pa of these patients. Given these findings and these recommendations, we should, at least in my opinion, consider stop checking empiric D-dimer levels on patients and making clinical decisions on that. Now, if you can't fully anticoagulate a patient, you want to check a D-dimer, Sure, go ahead, it's up to you. But overall, this blanket, everyday checking D-dimers on patients should go away. The question that does not seem to have an answer as of today, the 13th of February of 2022, is what do we do with the patients who are on the wards with full anticoagulation and then they need to be transitioned over to the intensive care unit? In those patients, should we switch them over to prophylaxis dose? Should we switch them over to, or should we continue them to being on full anticoagulation, that data is not there. Although the majority of patients do transition from the wards to the ICU rather than show up from, you know, being in the community to being straight in the ICU, intubated and such. So just keep, keep that in mind and um, I'll keep tabs on the data to see what is the result and what anybody says about that. In my practice, for the time being, it looks like I'm going to just switch them over for the aforementioned reasons of risk of bleeding compared to risk of BTE prophylaxis. Another thing that could be done, of course, is to do Dopplers on their four extremities to see if they have any active um, VTEs, DVTs that could harm the patient potentially and then make a decision from there. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I was pretty excited this morning when I woke up to see that these new guidelines were out. Hope you all benefited from it. And best of all, I hope that your patients benefit from these guidelines. Greatly appreciate your support. Hope you have a good Super Bowl Sunday with your family and friends. If you don't watch football, hope you're reading some articles and being a nerd like me. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye.